Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and today I'm joined by podcast good friend and Davis Cup chairman, Mark Woodford. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. That has a nice ring to it, too. I like that. Davis yeah. Cup chairman. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like I wanted to know how to introduce you. I said, let's be short and specific. Sometimes I do have a tendency of going on, but I think this has more weight. Yeah. Davis Cup yeah. chairman. I well, would, and, and probably appropriate right now as, as we're getting into the back end of the season, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, send me a business card so I can, you know, keep it next time I see you. <laughs> so, see, you know, like the elephants in the room, you know, with the Davis Cup been revamped a few times. You and I talked about this. So I'm sure there are a lot of tennis diehards who want to know what kind of conversations are happening. Why did you guys change the format this year after it got moved to Madrid a couple of years ago? Uh, you know, talk us through... Talk us through, you know, the reasoning behind this and the vision behind it. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, e- evolution, yeah, definitely. Davis Cup uh, needed to be revamped. Um, it just wasn't hitting the home runs uh, any longer. Um, it just had lost its appeal. I mean, the competition is, uh, you, you know, many decades old. Um, and, and I think the tennis scene has probably changed from when Davis Cup was really a priority for a number of players, um, you know, again, decades ago. Tennis now is, the calendar is filled with, you know, the four majors. Um, we've got the, the 1000 series as well. Um, uh, the depth of tennis, I, I, I think, has has had some impact. And obviously the prize money available, the financial side of the tour has, um, you know, swayed some players, um, you, you know, to go after you know, not just ranking points, but also uh, uh, prize money um, so that they can keep on playing. And Davis Cup is a bit more of a an honour position. Um, you know, obviously there's a grand trophy that is on offer at the end of the Davis Cup year. Um, but it is, it is uh, more country, uh, about playing for your country, wearing your country's colours, a lot of emotion that gets played uh, played out during a, a tie, and um, yeah, it 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 just needed the appeal. Fan base needed to be increased. Um, uh, instead of playing four times a year, um, that we we heard from the players, they wanted to you know cut back. They wanted to reduce their playing load for Davis Cup. Uh, the five set format was under fire. Um, so yeah, we made some. The ITF decided to make some some changes. Um, you could say some radical changes. And uh, uh, in 2019, we we um, joined forces. The ITF joined up with Cosmos, um, uh, backed by Gerard PK, which I'm, I'm sure is a very familiar uh, international football player to many who listen to uh, the podcast, Akib. And um, he had a vision uh, as well, and. Um, so now it's it's like the World Cup of Tennis. Davis Cup has always been the World Cup of Tennis, but we wanted it to to get back to its um, to its appropriate, um, I, I guess, stand uh, level in the game. And uh, you know, to I think again when we're talking about you, you know the the sixties, the seventies, and and possibly the eighties, you know, players would set their year, their schedule around the four slams, the majors, 
as well as Davis Cup. Um, and, and that's, you know, really the goal. Um, and, and you, you know, we, we had to make some changes there. The nations themselves were um, asking for some changes so that they could make money um, from hosting home ties that they could then put back into their own player development programs. Um, uh, the investment that goes from the ITF back into Davis Cup and to its nations is is significant. Um, and uh, yeah, so going going from the we still retain the home and away format that that's played in uh, the first round of ties. If you're talking about the world group, um, that is played in uh, week five of the calendar, um, and then we. Uh, take, took a look at trying to um, uh, have all of the nations convene in Madrid. That was our 2019 um, edition, um, which I think uh, under the circumstances, we look at you, you hope that you're going to have this wonderful success, that you're going to knock it out of the park and you're going to have be everyone's going to be happy players, fans, nations. Um, uh, you know, that you, you're going to reach out to people watching on TV. Um, but I, I think at the time, uh, maybe playing on three courts with all of the nations, um, you, you know, the fan base, um, you, you know, they focused on the centre court. There wasn't great um, attendance on some of the outer courts. Some of the matches went very, very long. We, I think back to a particular tie, I believe it was Italy versus USA, it might have been that finished at 4am in the morning. Um, and, and so, you know, after that first edition, we needed to make some further changes. Um, we, the Davis Cup committee, we realised that we it was not going to be just one year of changes. Um, we, we had um, planned for several tweaks to be made on a yearly basis, um, but in an effort to really retain Davis Cup and its appropriate place in uh, the men's game. And uh, so this year we have, you know, uh, um, uh, we split the two weeks up. Um, instead of playing back-to-back weeks, we, we now separate in week 37, which is a round-robin group, four groups of four. And then the top two teams um, from each of those groups, they play in week 47, which is what is coming up in a couple of weeks' time, uh, playing in Malaga uh, in Spain. And uh, we have eight nations there playing in a knockout competition. So virtually from quarterfinals, they'll just play knockout. So uh, it's, a, it's a little different. Um, uh, but again, the ITF has always been open to listening to the players. Um, that's the consultation is ongoing with them uh, as well as the federations. And uh, um, I, I think we're, you know, feeling we're in a, a pretty good position right now um, with the ATP have, have created this alliance. They've thrown their weight behind the Davis cup competition and the ITF. Um, and uh, it's on the calendar. Now, everything is a bit more official with the ATP and um you know, I think we're set for the next probably three, four years. We will retain this same format for the countries in the world group playing uh, week five, followed by week 37, and then the finals in week 47. Okay. All right. So this is a lot of information uh, for me to take this conversation forward. So let's first go back to the big announcement yep. that you just mentioned. The buy-in of ATP is important because, you know, ATP, ITF, to a common tennis fan, we know these bodies are independent 
but there should be some sort of a mutual calendar where they can you know exist and i think the atp cup is going to go away and davis cup is going to be the premier team event so yes. Yes, so let me just uh, let me just ask you this: like uh, with the both 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 bodies coming together, is the objective still to put Davis Cup back in the landscape of tennis as the premier tennis event? Is that still achievable? I know you guys are trying to do that. Is that still a goal that you know uh, you guys are sought after? Yeah, it it, it still is a, a huge goal, um, and and I think uh, you know it's it's tremendous to have the ITP, the ATP, I should say, um, you know, with this alliance, but with the with the Davis Cup competition, the ATP are the ones that control the calendar. They they um, you, you know we have the four Grand Slams, so probably just to break it down a little bit as well, Sakib, the four Slams they operate independently, but they also act as a group. Um, the, the the Grand Slam, four Grand Slam nations. And of course, then we have the WTA, which runs the women's tennis tour. The ATP run the men's tennis tour. And the ITF is another uh, another uh, entity, another body. The, the ITF look after the Davis Cup competition and the Olympics, but they don't control the calendar. The calendar falls into the hands of the ATP. And with the uh, rise of Andrea Gadenzi um, as leader of the ATP. Uh, he's had this vision over a number of years that that uh, since taking the helm of trying to streamline the calendar. He would love to be able to, you know, have the Master Series sit very high on the totem pole. Um, of course, it's not to try and take anything away from the four Grand Slams, but there's only so many tournaments that players can play during the year. Um, if they if they're after longevity, um, and it's those majors that I think you know if 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 an individual is trying to um, uh, dream of making the Hall of Fame, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, it's those majors which contribute to actually reaching that goal um, of being in the International Hall of Fame. And Davis Cup is is and the Billie Jean King Cup are a part of that, and and those. Nations, those entities have actually agreed in principle that there should be only one men's team competition and one women's team competition. And, and the ATP have thrown their support behind the Davis Cup. The, the ATP Cup was an event that, uh, that evolved a number of years ago. They had the backing of, uh, you know, of um, the financial backing from Tennis Australia. Uh, was held you know, the first week of January. But look, it, it really didn't make sense, you know, for the final event of the year in week 47 was the Davis Cup. And then five or five to six weeks later, we had this ATP Cup, another team competition to start the year off. Um, and, and it was, you know, hurting, hurting each other, um, the, the ATP Cup and the Davis Cup. And, um, you know, the ATP Cup does offer, was offering points. Um, but they had a very different entry system. Uh, and, of course, when you're playing in the same month of the Australian Open, uh, th- those, th- those people down uh, Tennis Australia, they want the Australian Open to be the shining tournament, the biggest tournament in January. They don't want any other event to really try and you know, overshadow um, the Australian Open. So the ATP Cup couldn't really grow um, too much because they had the Australian Open that was coming soon after. Um, 
So I, I, I think in, in probably the sense of Andrea Gadensi and his uh, vision of trying to streamline the calendar, uh, I, I think he's throwing his support, um, you know, behind the Davis Cup as well. Um, and, and so now we have um, those weeks that where the Davis Cup will be playing, um, that offers a bit of protection. There won't be, you know, tournaments played against the Davis Cup competition. So now players do have that choice of actually representing their country at Davis Cup play instead of perhaps having to juggle, do I go and play a, a 250 event or a, a 500 event? Um, hopefully they will keep, you know, in their, their mindset that, you know, it's important for them to represent their country uh, in a team competition because it just doesn't happen. There aren't that many opportunities during the year to represent your country. Sure. And with the Cosmos and Gerard Piquet backing the Davis Cup side of the con- conversation, uh, just curious, is the plan always to keep the finals in Spain or is that something uh, yeah. that's going to be open for discussion that it's going to be moved around like the Labour yeah. Cup at least tries to move around? Again, uh, a very loose comparison, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, that's, you know, it's something that we're we're conscious of. Um, Cosmos, obviously, you know, based in, in Spain, um, uh it it we we felt that the first uh, edition to be played in madrid um was a sound move uh and as i said earlier sakib you know those matches where spain played you know were tremendous uh atmosphere um it was quite amazing but of course the the attraction of davis cup is this home and away basis um you know to get your your country behind you when the fans come out and watch um but, you, you know, we, we have looked at, you know, maybe a neutral ground to host the Davis Cup finals. Um, we were close to actually making uh, a, a deal with a new site um, that would have been in the Middle East. But we also want to, uh, you know, make sure that the teams that qualify for the finals, we, we were conscious of the ATP finals, which for years was played in London at the O2 Arena and now is played uh, in Turin. You know, would we, how would the players uh, respond if they actually have to travel at the final week of the year from Europe, either to back to North America, to South America, to Asia, to the Middle East? Is that, is that something that, you, you know, does that appeal? Um, uh, d- does that travel appeal to them? Um, and, uh, you know, we, at the moment, I think we're, we're okay with the finals being played uh, in Europe, again, Malaga is in, you know, down down south of Spain um, and they have a contract for uh, the next few years. Um, but we are certainly open um, to hosting the Davis Cup finals um, in as, as many countries as possible. The Davis Cup is a global sport. We, we want to continue that. Um, but, it, you know, we have to pick a, a, a site uh, I, I think there's probably, and, and if we do go to a neutral site, it has to be somewhere close um, so that the players at the back end of the year are not, you know, too unsettled having to make their their trip to the Davis Cup finals. Sure. I mean, you know, like you're a student of the game and a big, you know, player of, you know, the past. So with the home and away, uh, you know, what we've lost uh, to some degree, we also have lost the home federations choosing a surface. So it looks like, for now, we have to be settled for indoor hard as a surface of choice. We won't be getting, you know, like slow clay of Moscow, like from 95 and, you know, like 
those damp conditions that yeah. sometimes make a tie even more, you know, well, like yeah. climbing the Everest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, yeah, yes, you're right to a certain extent. And I think that's probably, though, um, to, to try and set the record straight, that the home and away competition portion has not disappeared. It's still there. And, and it's built in in the first round of competition. There are only four countries that actually don't get to play or have the option of home and away. Everyone else, there are, there are over, I believe, 140 nations that compete in Davis Cup. So you have to remember the depth of the competition. Of course, we've got the world group um, and, and we've got the, the top eight teams playing in Malaga, but there are, you know, these zonal groups, world group one, world group two, three and four um, that are involved in the competition. So only four of those 140 plus nations, they they don't get to play in the home and away. Um, the rest of the countries that enter Davis Cup are all involved in a home and away portion, which in the world group happens in week five uh, of the year, the week after the Australian Open. Um, obviously, uh, this year we, we had the four round robin groups. Um, they were played in... Uh, um, uh, Valencia in Spain, Bologna, Italy. So the Italians got the advantage of, of playing at, at home. Uh, we played in Hamburg, Germany, uh, and we also played in Glasgow uh, up in Scotland. So all those countries, you know, the countries that actually qualify, they do have the ability to bid in order to host one of those four round robin groups. Um, and, and it's the same as the finals. There, you know, we, we're open to uh, other cities bidding for the finals. Um, so I think when we're playing in week 47, just even thinking about the, um, the reason that we're playing indoors on hard courts, generally, if we're playing in Europe in week 47, the weather conditions probably don't allow us to play outdoors and maybe on clay courts. We've, we're trying to keep the... Uh, synchronicity, the blend of what is leading up to our event, the Davis Cup finals. So we've just seen, you know, Paris indoors and Bercy completed indoors on a uh, an indoor Supreme Court. Um, we, we've got the next gen finals currently, you know, will be on this week. We have the ATP finals. They're all played indoors on a hard court. So we felt that for player health reasons, it would be sensible for us to follow that uh, premise as well and play in the same type of environment, playing conditions that the players are uh, facing over the last month. And then we once, once we decided on that for the Davis Cup finals, we felt that it was probably, again, sensible um, for us to play the round-robin group in week 37, uh, in the same conditions that we do for the Davis Cup finals. We didn't, we didn't feel like that it was, um, and, and again, these decisions we, we make as a Davis Cup committee, and of course there is board approval as well, um, but we, we talk to the nations that are involved um, in, in uh, uh, the group stage. Uh, and we we asked you, you know them uh, posed the question as well. These are the scenarios. But I think we we made a 
you know, a, a pretty decent um, decision in keeping the round robin group in the same environment, type of surface and indoors as to what the nations will play the Davis Cup finals in. Yeah, that's good Good to know because, you know, there's a sport of balls. Uh, a lot of these considerations are factored in, like you said, to host the Davis Cup in the respective weeks, week 37, and then the conclusion, the Davis Cup finals. Uh, and we also talked about, Mark, like when we were prepping for the show maybe a few weeks ago, at least for me in the U.S., I was glad to see Davis Cup was picked up by the Tennis Channel, unlike last year when I have to go buy the Rakuten app for 5 or $6, which I, you know, I had no problem doing it, but it kind of made me think, you know, do I really need this? And, you know, it makes the sport inaccessible. So again, yep. kudos to Cosmos and the, the brain power behind it for making it, I'm sure, available in respective geographies at the main channels where people can go and get the Davis Cup instead of just asking where is this match being shown. It's key. It's key to, you know, there, there are marketplaces that, um, you know, for the regular tour and the Grand Slams, it's on on the TV consistently on the major networks. Unfortunately, Davis Cup that that was an issue that helped the the, the decline of Davis Cup decades ago. Um, it it just started to disappear. The format was tired. Um, the players weren't committing to playing, and and so there were th- these different elements that you know necessitated a revamp. Um, and and trying to update the competition. Um, and, and of course, the US is a huge marketplace. There are many other sports that at this time of year, uh, tennis would be up against. Um, and that was an issue when when Cosmos, they, they take care of the commercial uh, area. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, the first couple of years, it, it just they weren't able to strike those deals where uh, the Davis Cup would be played on either ESPN or the tennis channel. They're the two probably carriers here in the United States where mainstream tennis fans watch their tennis. Um, so I absolutely, you, you, you're, you're so right. The, the, the joy, I think sometimes you have to, you know, instead of maybe looking at what you can, the return, the financial return is to make a, a sensible, logical decision. Maybe the return might not be as grand, but you are getting the Davis Cup in front of the eyes of tennis fans here in the US. So, um, yeah, I, I was uh, thrilled. I think Cosmos, uh, you know, have done a great job in that respect. Let's hope that it continues as well. And uh, I, and look, the, the US this year, they have a great chance of of doing you know, extremely well in the competition. They've done, they've done, you know, massive effort already, you know, reaching the quarterfinal stage and uh, they play Italy in the first, in their first match uh, when they get to Malaga. That is probably the the most difficult of the, the uh, quarterfinal matchups. But, you know, if, if Davis cup is going to be, you know, put back onto a mantle, um, where everyone tunes in or a lot of tennis fans will tune in, it really does need the help of, of the US team having some success as well. So let's uh, keep this conversation going forward with another role that you occupy is with the Hall of Fame committee. Yeah, you are a part of those conversations. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, the voting is on right now. And I just put a question out there for my listeners a few weeks ago. Juan Carlos Ferrero and Carlos Moya are part of the voting list who has had a better career. And now that you have to take a side, 
but uh, just to take a deeper dive into this, uh, you know, what triggers a certain selection of a player? I know they all have had good careers once you make that cut, but yep. uh, Hall of Fame is kind of, uh, you know, you're narrowing it down. Basically, you're narrowing down the great from the good, you know, or the best from the great, you know, no matter yep. how you say it. So yes. just uh, throw, throw some weight behind it. It, it is um, it, it is one of my most favorite uh, times of the year when we get together on the uh, the panel, the selection panel, and and go through these names. Um, there are many different um, identities that are, that are involved in this committee, um, where we go through the biographies of a lot of these players. I think some sometimes they're automatically ignited, you know, to be considered uh, uh, for the ballot. Um, you, you know, cl- clearly when you've reached number one in the world um, is is a consideration. I think years out on tour is another element. Um, uh, you, you know, how many grand slams, how many majors, how many times have you represented your country, um, whether it's in BJK Cup or Davis Cup play? Um, it, there, are, there are certain areas that I think, um, you know, bring these players uh, like Juan Carlos and and uh, Carlos Moya onto the ballot, worthy of of uh, of being considered, of being voted on um, in their election towards the International Hall of Fame. But it is it, it is uh, as I said, I, I look forward to getting together uh, when we meet mid year um, to discuss the candidates. Um, uh, we we narrow. Uh, there is a pool of players. We narrow that down, and uh, and then there's that voting process that that takes place, which is un, under uh, underway right now. Um, and you know the I, I think there's 200 plus voting members for the International uh, Tennis Hall of Fame. That uh, you know it's a it's an opinion. I mean we we look at. We look at the each candidate's biography, their history in the sport. Um, you know, some of the the voters might look at consider fame as um, a, a, a heavy criteria. They might add a bit more weight on that. Um, but but certainly, I think um, you know it, it is a matter of, um, in my opinion, of of how many slams that that you were able to pick up as a singles player. Um, how many slams you're able to to win as a doubles player, um, and uh, I, I, you know the times, the the amount of years perhaps that you've you've spent at number one, um, looking at your win ratio as well um, throughout the the years, I, I think is uh, uh, another area that is um, that we consider. Um, it's not a, an easy decision in the end, um, uh, and you know I. Um, I, again, from the the two hundred odd members, um, you, you know, I think are hopefully wise enough, you know, that they um, make their choices um, when they're voting on on these individuals who are, who, who are great champions, by the way, too, Sakib. It, it as you said, it it is trying to you know just lift you know that bar a little higher. Um, uh, you know, from, d- d- you know, defining between, you know, great players to champion players, um, you, you know, were, uh, yeah, very difficult. No, you, you know, true, because there's so many 
layers to this conversation and most of these players who get nominated are incredibly deserving in their own right so a generic question like serena williams retired this year roger federer retired this year but <laughs> but roger federer played his last match but now okay labor cup is part of atp someone was saying he played his last match at wimbledon 21 so he technically could be you know a shoe in with five years and serena would be a shoe in from 22 because she retired in 22 if she has so have yeah. you heard have you heard the whiff of that conversation or they both will be in, you know inducted we, together yeah <laughs> we, we have uh, there there is a it's a a five year rule um that that uh, we we take um you know a player has to be retired five years before they come up onto the ballot for consideration um it those two names did come up uh in in the 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 conversation or the meeting that we had um thinking wow it's going to be a bumper year <laughs> i i think we we probably you know look at federer as you know officially retiring this year uh, as opposed to 21 um and and if serena remains retired then um yeah that that's going to be one heck of a uh, ceremony <laughs> held in Newport Rhode Island um you know but we also you know there's been you know years uh certainly on the men's side where the grand slams have been dominated by Roger Rafa and Novak um you know there haven't been you know that many winners outside of those three so um you know look there's it's not just a playing category that is up for the hall of fame there's a wheelchair um category there's a a contributor uh coach category um so uh, um yeah it it certainly will be interesting in in years to come uh when uh you know we have to sort through um appropriate candidates for the hall of fame no absolutely those will be fascinating times so let's take this conversation into a slightly different direction the tour finals for the men's side is coming up yep in a week's time and you and i whenever we have gotten together going back to your commentary from that eventful match between Tsitsipas and Chorich at the Open a few years ago. Yes. So how do you look at Stefano Tsitsipas's year? If he wins five matches in Turin, he becomes the first number one since John McEnroe in 82 and this stat comes through my good friend Vanch who has his own podcast and he's the king of stats on Twitter. So uh-huh. McEnroe was the last man who finished the year and is number one without winning a major and Tsitsipas, you know, has to win you know all five matches in turin and he can join john mackendro uh, what 40 years gap to be the year number one and uh, you know without a major so mm-hmm. my question to you is you know with so much new talent coming on the tour i am of the firm belief that sisipas is going to be in the mix he's too good he may have to make some adjustments but how do you see it because that's what matters how do you see his progress is the glass kind of a bit empty or you still think there's a lot of potential to fill the glass. Yeah, well I I I think there's still potential with um with Stefanos. Um uh I just like the his game. I like the variation that he offers. And and it's it, the difficult part is when you have a few strings to your instrument, it it's trying to um pluck the right string in order to actually get that victory. Uh I I think he plays he emphasizes so much of his calendar in the early part of the year i think he's much more at home on the clay courts um and that's been probably one of my concerns is that when roland garros finishes 
And it is, you know, the season is long. He puts in so much effort physically and mentally that I think he's a little more challenged when he gets onto the grass. I don't think we necessarily see the best of City Pass on the grass for the moment, um, nor do we see the best of him uh, in the lead up to the US Open. I, I, I'm thrilled that, you, you know, he posted a great result in, in Paris, uh, pushing uh, Djokovic, you know, to that third set tiebreaker. And it's an incredible stat that you just, uh, you know, threw in there that, you know, in order for him to win the five matches. That's a big ask, a tall order for um, Stefanos. Um, you, you know, I, I think he went, given the conditions that, you, you know, Turin offers, um, you know, I think a lot's going to depend on the pace of the court. But I, I don't think it's it's a, a scenario that, you know, without any elements that he has to um, uh, p- play with or to, tr- to try to shoulder, um, you know, I think that helps his serve. I mean, my question, my, my question area of his game is the quality of his second serve. I mean, he he seems to chase it, uh, you know, too many times. Um um, you know, I think he gets caught in not being able to vary the, the backhand um, between, you know, coming over the top of it and using a backhand slice. Although I do see him trying to use the, the backhand slice shorter and keeping it low. There's something on that backhand slice now. Um, and look, he's a, he's a great athlete, um, but, you know, he still disappears for, for periods in matches where um, that, that cause him um, you know, perhaps to lose his way or to, to not win those matches. I, I look, I, I, when we don't know at this stage what the groups are um, going to be in Turin, um, but hopefully that is enough of a motivating factor for Stefanos to, you know, with the knowledge that, it, you know, to win five matches and he could end up year number one. I, I think there's so much more potential with him but it's it's you know there is that possibility, Sakib. I'd be interested in what you think. I mean, you know, knowing that he's got to win five matches and to hold down number one to or to finish the year number one is that is that too big for City Pass to actually handle? Does does that in a way scare him and affect his level of play? I think when he lost to the, the U.S. Open. In the first round, which was very unexpected because he did reach the final in Cincinnati, lost to Borna Chorich. I think he read, he said somewhere that he's going to make a run because he, along with Carlos Alcaraz and Nadal, were the few guys who were mathematically having a go at the ranking as a yeah. year end. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, look, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot goes around on Twitter because I get my pulse from Twitter and there's a lot of emotion. Sisipas is a very popular player on Twitter, but at the same time, he hasn't done exactly good on majors. Like, I put a tweet out there. If he does this, Mark, I don't know if there's an answer here I'm giving you. It's going to be so incredible because we've lived through the Federer, Djokovic, Nadal era where their their fortress was built on majors. Here's this guy can mathematically rack up the number one ranking in a year when Rafa Nadal won two majors and Carlos Alcaraz you know, won one and went deep in the other one. He accumulated 1,000 total points in four grand slams. So he's doing it the hard way. He's picking up 250 there, 500 there, 700 there. So I think yeah. that's incredible. So I, I'm all for it. If he does this, it's going to be unique because I'm old school 80s tennis fan. So I think 
the fascination with majors is right. It's the pinnacle of the sport, but I still think it's an 11th month sport. You, you go and, you know, get points from wherever you can. It's the first, it's a race, you know, that resets every January 1st. And then whoever is having the best mathematical, you know, score in November is the world number one. And it will be very fascinating for me in a good way. If CC pass can get this without winning a major, I know it's not a popular opinion, Because then the counter argument would be, is Nadal your best player of the year? And I'm fine with it. Both can coexist. Rankings are number-based. They tell you what they tell you. And who's the best player Uh, based on the majors? It's Nadal. He won two. But who's the best player who didn't play much and still in the mix? It's Djokovic. So -hmm. I think you can go multiple ways. But what's your thought on someone winning the year-end ranking without winning a major? Yeah. uh, that, that, That for me is a is a key factor. Um, I'm probably a bit more of a traditionalist in that respect, um, Sakib, that I, I feel like someone who, you know, finishes year year end number one surely must be someone who, a, a player who has has held, you know, one of the four grand slams. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I think we've been, you know, some people might say we've been spoiled for t- too long with, um, you know, with the top three. Um, that that have been winning these majors and generally they finish the year end number one. Um, but times are going to be changing. I, I mean, we're you know Federer's already you know announced his retirement. Um, you know, I think Rafa, you, you know, probably um, uh, you, you know I, I don't see him now with with a, a family. Um, I, I just don't think that he's going to be able to play a year round calendar. I think his body, you know, probably plays a part in, in, uh, you know, his scheduling now. Um, so that we might see, um, you, you know, these times where a liked Tsitsipas uh, may be able to sneak in holding down that number one um, position. It, you can only beat who is up the other end on any given day. Um you, you know, there sometimes a talk about uh, um, and a, one of these guys, or even on the women's side, oh, they well, they won the slam, but they, their opponent wasn't, you know, ranked that high. They didn't have to play uh, someone in the top five in the final. And uh, but you know, you can't control that. You can only control, you know, how you are on that day in the final. And uh, you know, look, he he's, you, you know, he certainly played uh, a, a number of tournaments and and maybe maybe we should be um commending Sitsipas that you know for, in order for him to achieve this mathematically clearly it shows that he's won plenty of matches throughout the year what have you heard from your good buddy Mark Philippoussis who's been the Sitsipas coach a few times during this year at Wimbledon and US Open do you have any insights what kind of a, what kind of a guy Stefano says i mean he seems like a very likable you know character but any any input from your friend? Who's... I yeah, I I spoke to Flip uh, at, at Wimbledon, and um, you, you know was you know saying what what a you know good job, great uh, um, must be great opportunity working with him. He 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 spoke very highly of uh, working with Stefanos. Um, was was looking forward to the rest of the year. He felt that you know there was still. A, a bit to work on, um, which I think is that that's as a coach, you know, you're happy that you're working with a player that, you know, you've got room to, you know, to keep improving. Um, and, uh, um, but I just don't know whether they're still working together. I, I didn't see um, Philippus sitting there in, in Bercy. I just saw 
um, Stefanos's father. Um, I, I did, interestingly, I did at the US Open, um, you, you know, with Tsitsipas going out first round. Uh, the day before his match, he practiced with Tanasi Kokonakis, who is Australian from my hometown in Adelaide. And that uh, they actually practiced together on Armstrong. So I went and watched that uh, practice session. And I, w- I was just at the time thinking to myself, watching this hour long practice, A, how well they were hitting the ball, both of them. Uh, and B, I was looking at the interaction, Kokonakis uh, C- with his coach, Todd Langman, and Stefanos with Mark Philippoussis. But I was also aware of the the ever-present father of Stefanos. And uh, I think, you know, for me, I would like to see Philippoussis continue on working with Stefanos. I think there is uh, uh, that the the issue is probably trying to, you know, whether uh, Stefanos's dad is willing to hand over the reins to someone else. Um, whether whether he still feels that he should be the one and only in charge, and I think that uh, if if uh, I understand uh, Thomas Enquist um, perhaps ended the um, partnership that was going on last year um, was was maybe struggling with um, the the presence of Stefanos's father, um, and if Philippoussis is no longer you know working with him, that that might be um the the problem as well but um yeah i, I look I, I i just don't know whether um you know philippousis is still you know involved at the moment um i don't i don't know if uh twitter um any messages out there regarding that um you, you know that that partnership yeah find out if you hear from him because i know philippousis doesn't listen to my podcast otherwise you know, he'll get back to us in a hurry. But, <laughs> but Maybe we need to work on him more. He say, come on, give us it. Tell us what you know about that. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. But, you know, like what you just mentioned is like a topic that never goes away with not only Pass, with Sasha Zverev, right? He's had few coaches. And this year when his dad came back from prolonged, I think, illness, and Zverev mm-hmm. said, now I feel comfortable, even though Bruguera was working with him. I don't know what the status is of that partnership, but he said, my dad knows my game best. So this reliance on parents, I mean, you know, these guys are all like in the early 20s. So we can see their dads have been such an integral part of their tennis. And both Zverev and Sissipa's dad, they know their tennis too. It's not like they don't know the tennis, but then the consensus in the tennis fraternity or the community of fans and journalists is sometimes it's good to have a new voice, but that voice should outweigh the present voice and there should be a balance. Like, you know, but we've seen with other successful players like Marian Vaida and Boris Becker work together. Uh, Severin Luthi and Ivan Lubicic work together. Francisco Roig and Carlos Moya work together. So with the Sissipas and Zvera, we still don't know if the outside coach can out, you know, yeah. outperform the dad. I mean, that's and that's an easy for easy thing for me and the fans to say, but. It's a it's a very touchy topic, I'm sure, for players. A sensitive topic, yes, uh, not, not, um, without a doubt. Um, yeah, just the, even to to think back of uh, the years that well, years ago when I uh, had a period of time working with Novak Djokovic, um, Murray and Vida was still in charge, and this was in the early stages of Novak um, really gate crashing. 
um, the monopoly that Federer and Nadal had enjoyed for a number of years. He was catching up to them very quickly. Um, and, and through this period, uh, I, I was working, helping uh, Novak out. And uh, um, I remember in Miami at, at the tournament there, um, we we had started work at Indian Wells, which is the tournament the week before Miami, and it was just Marion and the uh, the fitness trainer and myself um, sitting there watching Novak's matches. We got to Miami, and uh, I was it was passed on to me that you know his parents were going to turn up, and I, I was you know no no problem uh, with that at all. Um, when we went to see Novak play the first match, and I think he got put onto center court. Um, we were given, you know, seats at courtside. So we went and sat down and, uh, um, but I was a little curious as to why we weren't sitting in the front row of the seats that we had been given. Um, and I was, was passed on to me, oh no, we have to leave those for Novak's parents because they, you know, expect to sit there. Um, that's their preferred seating. You know, I, I could, I guess I could have easily, what I'm, I'm trying to point out is I could have taken it, you know, you know that uh, both, well, two ways, I guess, you know, at the time I thought, hang on, but, you know, when Novak is looking over at us for that support, aren't we the coaches? Um, and, and yet if your parents are sitting, you know, in front of the coaches, does that mean that there is the player looking at them for the emotional support? Um it it look it, it didn't it didn't bother me i probably i i do remember at the time i i paused i was i was a little puzzled um and and i did speak to to Marin Vider about it but he had experienced that for you know a period of time it wasn't an issue for him so i i took that as the lead uh, from from Marin that if it's not an issue for Marin who is the main coach the head coach then you know it it shouldn't be quite the case for me either i sh- it shouldn't bother me um but a- again it's not like his parents were there all the time and i think they've transitioned very well you remember, i mean look novak we all start as young fellas um we need that support and it's the same on the women's tour as well sometimes you need that emotional support of your family there um they're the ones that have helped raise you and and guided you into becoming a professional tennis player um but uh, you know look at it slowly and but surely you know i think we've seen novak's parents not you know they, they they don't desire to be sitting in the front row they're not they're not taking any spotlight away from novak interacting with his with his coaches, which continued on with um, with Murren for a long time, and uh, of course with with Boris Becker and and Todd Martin was a, a, another um, individual that helped Novak uh, through through his career. Um, but but yeah, there there is I think for, for Sitsi Pasta and his father. To me, I would for me my opinion, I would like to see Stefanos's father just take that little back step. Um, uh you know maybe the same with even with uh Holger Rune. um you know his his mum is there she's ever present at every match um i i i think over time as as he starts to you know evolve more um after a great week in paris you know it might be time where she just you know is not that constant presence
Hmm, interesting. So it's such a shame that, you know, I never brought this up before, uh, that you were part of the Djokovic coaching group. How long was that association? If you want to give a little more to the Djokovic fans, any fond memories that sometime, you know, because there's there's so much in the public domain when you talk about Djokovic and Nadal, like these kind of great champions. So if you want to share like an anecdote or a memory of your time with Novak, that would make this podcast like a delight for the listeners. <laughs> well, I, I mean, when I, when I was tapped um, or asked, um, you know, if I had an interest in helping, he was he was basically, you know, trying to work uh, on an area of his game, which was transitioning uh, from the baseline to the net. He felt that he he was comfortable when he got to net, but it was actually getting to the net was um, the concern. Um, so I was thrilled when when uh, you know I was approached. Um, I said, yes, we began here at Indian Wells. We went to Miami um, and he was trying to focus on, um, you know, keeping that, um, working on it. It wasn't to be a 24-7 type of a a deal. We, there there was a focus on uh, uh, Roland Garros and Wimbledon. Um, You know, I was at Roland Garros commentating. um, and, And so when I would finish, the matches that I was commentating on, I'd head out to, to catch his practice or, you know, his matches. Um, probably one thing that uh, that stood out at that first year of Roland Garros was, um, <laughs> you know, in a commentary booth. You know, we're we're not always. Dre- I mean, there are occasions we're dressed in a in a in a suit and tie. There are occasions you're dressed maybe a little more casually, but um, you know, depending on whether you're on camera or not. Um, but I always found it was like <laughs> almost a Superman effect. I would leave the booth, and as I'd be trying to get to a court where he was playing on, I'd be discarding my, I'd, I'd undo my shirt and unbutton it because underneath it was when those times when Novak would have his some of his coaching staff or all of his coaching staff wear a T-shirt that was. You, you know, with Novak's name or um, with uh, the the Serbian colours, and uh, so I would have that T-shirt on underneath my suit and tie or my my clothing that I'd been commentating in. So it was like getting there and you know sitting in this in this uh, you know uh, player box, coach's box, and um, at, at that time he had you know I mean he still does many many supporters, and uh, you know learning to to get up and you you know. Um, I, I think at that stage, I probably was a bit more like coaching. You just sat down and, uh, you know, you were uh, affirming that the type of play, uh, you know, clapping and, you know, cheering. But, you know, I, I had to get used to this where, you know, you stood up and, you know, you were cheering very loudly and, uh, you, you know, uh, um, you know, fist pumping and high fiving with everyone else. And that that uh, I got caught out a couple of times because they would be everyone would stand up and I'd be sitting there going, oh, oh OK, I've got to stand up now. Oh, yes. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Nolle. <laughs> so um, well, what was, year is this? Was it 2008 or 2009? Oh, prob- probably um, looking. It was around that time, Sakib. I'm not so great with uh, with the the actual year, but he made uh, he made the final of Indian Wells. Uh, he went ahead and won Miami. Um, he made the semis of Roland Garros. Um, he then played on grass. We moved to to Queens Club, um, 
and uh, he was um, made the quarterfinals there. And then he ended up making the semifinals of Wimbledon, but he defaulted that match um, because he had a, a really bad blistered toe. And uh, that's probably another short story because I was again commentating at Wimbledon alongside of John Newcomb and Fred Stolley. And of course, when I would come back into the commentary booth um, to call other matches, you know, they'd be asking me questions about Novak. And I, you know, was telling them that, um, you know, he had a a really bad injury um, that was going to affect his performance at the back end of the tournament because his toe was, his feet were getting so bloodied and blistered. And of course, in Australia, when we say, well, you just have a blister, you kind of like, oh yeah, well, you should be playing with blisters. Um, and, and so I remember Nuke and, and Fiery giving me plenty of grief. They were like, you know, what type of coach are you to let your player default in the semifinals of Wimbledon? For Christ's sakes, don't you know it's a grand slam? And um, But uh, look, I... I certainly remember seeing Novak's feet um, that particular year at Wimbledon and uh, seeing him have several injections into the the various blisters that um, had just, I mean, it wasn't a regular blister. I mean, it was just blood everywhere and just this gooey yuck stuff that was coming out and uh, it was like it was infected. Um, and, you know, look, the guy had trouble putting on regular shoes, let alone tennis mm. shoes and running around the court. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, look, it, it, I wish it would have lasted longer. Um, it, it was probably about an eight-week project. Um, and, you know, when I think back now, you know, you, you can't teach uh, anyone, um, you know, in an in a eight-week period. Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter the amount of hours that you're on the court with them, but... Uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, thinking back, I, pro- I, I wish I probably was a bit more um, that I, that I stepped up and not demanded, but had, had, you know, just guided him to be spending more time. Um, you know, his game wasn't going to disappear. Um, I was probably a very conscious of what, you know, he was working on uh, other than transitioning. That was just one area. Um, and, uh, you know, may, maybe if I if I had, um, you, you know, uh, just ex- asked him to spend a bit more time, you know, working on that particular area that I was brought into, you know, it might have it might have lasted a little longer, but you know, I look, I, I don't look back at it with too many regrets. Um, I was just always amazed about how he wanted information constantly, and and that that showed me that he was probably headed towards reaching number one and holding down, winning so many slams like he has because he he just believed in himself. Um, everyone around him, his parents as well, believed, you know, that he was going to be one of the greatest ever. Um, and it, it was it was an amazing time. Yeah, and the year is 2007. I just looked it up. He won the first set versus Nadal 6-3 and then defaulted in the third set, I think, due to injury, like you said, with blisters, 1-4 down. No, that's a great, great uh, information that I envisioned to be part of the podcast. But, you know, with you, uh, this is now making the episode even richer. So again, uh, staying with Djokovic, he's going uh, in, to me, he's going to be the favorite in Turin. So how do you see some of the other big names 
that are becoming big as we speak. Like Felix Ojeda-Lassim has had this amazing run, has won three tournaments in a row, then lost uh, to uh, Holger Rune uh, this yep. week. And yep. then uh, there's Kasper Ud, who's going to be making his second appearance at the Tour Finals. And then uh, there's Rublev. Uh, any particular player or two that you will be more following closely while this tournament is... Uh, going on and your, your thoughts on the field in general mm. well yeah yeah look at probably the, the the two bigger names there you know rafa you know can he can he finally win uh a year-end finals i mean that's the one one uh, you know trophy that's that's not in his cabinet um uh and a lot is for me is going to depend on the pace of the court for rafa um djokovic as as well is um uh, I, I think losing uh, last week is only going to fuel his fire. Um, you know, great players bounce back. Um, you know, they don't, they accept losing, but it, it doesn't always, you, you know, uh, sit well with them. Any chance to to make amends um, and, and they usually, um, you know, step up to the plate. Um, and, I, and I don't think the pace of court will actually interfere um, with with Djokovic's progress, um, Kasper Ruud and, and Felix, the two guys that you you also mentioned there, um, you know F- Felix, I think has boy um, rebounded after you know like f- losing early at the U.S. Open. Um, he then went to play Davis Cup. You know he was a at the beginning of the year a non-starter playing Davis Cup for Canada. Um, they were uh, placed back into the competition thanks to the withdrawal of Russia and Belarus out of the, the Davis Cup competition. Um, so, you know, it, it was like the, the, a storm in a teacup. I mean, you know, he needed matches. He didn't have a great run at the US Open. Um, and, and he elected to, to go to Valencia and, and play as the number one um, uh, player for, for Canada. The first match he lost to Korea. He lost to Kwon. I mean, he was up four-one, a double break, and I think he, I think he had points to go up five-one, um, but it turned around very quickly. And I, I mean, I, I saw part of that match, um, and I and I was just like, wow, um, he's really short on confidence. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, uh, how he is going to play the rest of the week. And it was the difference was night and day. He won his next two matches. He beat uh, um, uh, Alcaraz. Uh, he, he also had to. Um, oh boy, he played. Um, I forget the, who the, the third match was against. But amazing level of tennis. He was untouchable. And sometimes that's how players re- re- respond. As I mentioned with Djokovic, you know, losing that match. You know, it might be a kick in the backside for Novak, and I and I think that might send a, you know, a few warning signals out. Um, but the same same happened with Orge Aliassim after getting beat by Quan. Um, you know, he rebounded. Uh, his level was superb, and he's continued on with it. I mean, he's riding this confidence wave. What three tournaments in a row before losing to to Rune in the semis? I mean, probably fatigue factor played some part in in that match, but. You know he he can be dangerous uh, in 
an indoor arena with no elements to disturb his serve. That's the the, the shining uh, strength in his game, certainly since the US Open. I mean, he's been untouchable on his serve. And then he backs it up with his athleticism and, and the forehand. So he's going to be very dangerous, but he's got to be able to, to hold on to this form that he has shown. There's He's not playing next week, uh, this week. Uh, he's got some time off. So, you know, sometimes, you, you, you know, it, it, uh, having that week off, you know, they, they just lose a bit of momentum. Um, Rude, I think, is still, to me, he's got to show a, a bit more. Um, I, I, you know, the effort at the US Open was, that answered a lot of questions for me, but I, I think I need to see a bit more. Um, you know, he his victories up until the US Open had been, you know, uh, on clay. Um, they'd been at 250 level tournaments. So that was a huge step up for him at the US Open. I think now is, for, you know, for him to try and continue on um, you know, with the momentum. Uh, but, you know, the I think for the number th- two or three player in the world, uh, I'd like to see a bit more from him. Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily, I think the speed of the court, um, you, you know, it depends on how that is. They set it up, uh, might impact Rude's chances. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's tough to, tough to uh, you know, go past Djokovic at this stage, Saqib. Sure. Right, so the not the forgotten man, but I thought you know, like we all are victim of the moment, and we are living in. Of course, the Djokovic era still goes on, but we are also living in the breakout year of Alcaraz and Runa. So what's happening here is in the discourse in my universe, and of course your your universe is a bit more sophisticated because you are all former players. So do you think the the window of the Daniil Medvedevs, Sasha Zverevs? Sissipas, you think he's shrinking even more with the arrival of Runa and Alcaraz? Or are you going to just hold on making these kind of judgments and Daniil Medvedev is going to be part of the conversation for a long, long time? Right. It's, it's, it's almost a habit, isn't it, that we just go directly to uh, Djokovic and, and Nadal. Um, and, and as you say, what about Medvedev? Um, but, you know, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't shown us a whole lot this year, I, I don't think. Um, that hasn't shown us enough. Uh, put put it that way. Um, uh, what winning a couple of weeks ago, just his second tournament for um, the the season. But his game is huge. Um, you, you know, certainly playing indoors. I, I think it's a an environment that is suitable for him. Again, City Pass. Um, you, you know, I just I, I I I keep waving that flag of variety. You know, you. He has ways to play. Um, it's just how he can implement it uh, against the, the, the different opponents. You know what you're going to get from Medvedev when he steps onto the court. He's going to be like 10 feet behind the baseline. He's going to, you know, have a rip at, uh, you know, any ball that comes his way. Um, where Sitsipas, I just like the, the variation, but it might take him a little longer. Um I, you know, I know Rublev and uh, and Taylor Fritz have been added to the field now uh, after the results of last week. I pr- probably, you know, a bit, bit of a tall order for those guys, um, you know, to, to play a significant part. Um, I think their time is is ahead rather than right now. I think uh, 
um, you know, look, we're, we're, we're in great hands, you know, moving forward. When time comes, Nadal is no longer there. Djokovic um, is no longer there. I, I think we have a rich future ahead of us with uh, these guys that have started to, you know, knock on the door. And in some cases, Alcarez, because he's picked up the, the US Open, he's got his foot into the door. Right. Uh, a f- fun question, which uh, is probably going to be asked to you in many, you know, maybe podcasts or if people run into you, who has a bigger upside? Uh, Alcaraz, Ojeal Yassim, Sinner, Rona, Mozetti. I mean, there's so many names out there. Uh, you know, so what's your take on this? And this could be changing. This is not like you can pencil in and just say, hey, can I change? Yeah, of course you can change. But what you've seen so far of these five, six names or any other name, which way are you leaning, you know, as a future, you know? Well, yeah. And, and, and Saqib, you know, there are two names that we, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned one who I probably put number three in his country, but there are two other guys that we have yet to mention from Italy, Yannick Sinner and Matteo Berrettini. Oh, I mentioned Sinner, sorry. I oh, you mention- did? Okay. okay. My, yeah. You mentioned Musetti. I, I know I, I remember you say, because I, I, I love Musetti's game. Again, the variation that that he offers. And I think his serve, uh, you know, confidence now, I think his serve is going to be probably a bit more troublesome for opponents. Um, I, I, I think, you, you know, yeah, look, this that's the excitement that, um, you know, quenches my thirst, um, you know, moving forward. Um because we've got all, all the, those those players, and they don't necessarily play the same way. Um, you know, I, I, Alcaraz. Um, again, I go back to a couple of years ago, seeing him at Wimbledon on on one of the outside courts, uh, and seeing Juan Carlos Ferrero sitting there. And uh, I, I was watching. I, I had to look at the scoreboard to see. You know, is he actually Spanish? I wanted to see whether because this guy was serving volleying. He was actually playing a backhand slice and going to the net. Uh, and I went and stood behind um, uh, Juan Carlos and I said, you know, geez, are you, are you telling him to do this or is he doing this of his own volition? And he said, it's the latter. He, he loves going to net. He loves playing a backhand slice and he loves the volley. Um, and, and so he, he said, it's music to my ears. And, I, you know, I just, you know, patted uh, Juan Carlos on the back and I said, yeah, just keep, keep it going. It's just, it's, it's fantastic to see, um, and, you know, and his willingness to actually shorten the points. Um, you know, he shortens the points with his power. He shortens the points with his forehand. He shortens the points by coming to net. Um, you, you know, that's the variation that I think is, is, uh, has taken, taken the tennis, um, seen by, we're in awe, uh, when, you know, he steps onto the court. Um, but we've got these other guys that certainly, you know, Berrettini, don't forget he, you know, reaching the, well, he's made the semis of the US Open, uh, a final of Wimbledon. Um, you know, he probably his favorite surface is clay. Um, uh, you, you know, he's just got to get a run where, you know, he's not, uh, perhaps his body's not betraying him. Uh, and, and I think Sinner has just, you know, you couldn't have uh, someone better beside you in your camp, guiding you through um, the next year and a half, um, you know, in, in acquiring Darren Cahill as, as a coach. So um, yeah, it's, it's, um, 
uh, huge, huge um, uh, period for men's tennis. No, incredible, incredible with Darren Cahill and Sinner. That's quite the exciting combination. Uh, all right, so I'm going to let you go. Just one more question here. Uh, when we were supposed to do this, this was supposed to be a US Open uh, review, but then, you know, you were traveling. I We couldn't get a date. My schedule, you know, uh, didn't match with yours. Nick Kyrgios had a pretty good US Open. He's a bit old than any name that we've mentioned, but there's some life back in it, you know, in a way that we didn't assume we'll ever yep. see. Yep. So what are the words coming from Australia? He's doing it his own way, doing traveling with friends and girlfriend and a trainer, no coach. He even went on, I think, the ESPN booth and someone asked him, I think it was Chris Fowler, that what about coaching or something? He said, oh, coaches don't come cheap. They're expensive. You know, so, so that's Nick. But again, uh, he did show a quality and level of tennis that we didn't see was still possible. So what are your thoughts on the resurgence of Kyrgios? You still think you need to see more? You still think it's temporary or you don't know what to make of it? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll reel it back to the beginning of the year. I, I think the the reason why Nick Kyrgios has had uh, an amazing, his best year is because of doubles, partnering Tanasi Kokonakis and winning the Australian Open. Um, a, it's matches. Uh, it, it avoids him having to go practice, which he says that he, you know, is not always keen on spending time out on the tennis court. But by playing matches and winning matches, standing beside a very good friend. The focus is not entirely on Nick Kyrgios. They share. He can kind of be in the shadow of Tanasi if he chooses to. Um, But that success has bred more success um, for Nick Kyrgios. Um, I don't think there are too many people uh, are aware that uh, after Wimbledon, he wanted to continue on. Uh, with the success, as opposed to going home to Australia and taking time off, he elected to try and uh, push forward, persevere. He stayed over, came over to the US um, and his team. He has a, as you mentioned, that he travels with his girlfriend. He has a, a buddy of his that he went to, to high school with um, who acts as a bit of a, a coach, a guide, um, and he also has a trainer. Uh, from Canberra, who has his own business and very successful. Um, Nick didn't want the success that he enjoyed on the grass courts to end. He um, had asked his trainer to actually stay over and travel with him to the US. But the trainer actually has a family, has wife and kids back home. Uh, that live in Canberra and he had been on the road for a number of weeks already with Nick. So Nick stepped up to the plate and said, you know, I would love to continue on trying to build upon the success at Wimbledon. I trust you. I value you. If I bring your family over, would you stay and keep working with me? The trainer said, yes, the family came over they went on a had a bit of a holiday. Nick uh, took care of everything for them, uh, in order to ensure that you know he could build upon what uh, the success uh, at Wimbledon. I throw that in because I think you know Nick. Look, we we do 
come down hard on Nick sometimes because of those antics on the court, but there is a good heart in there. Um, he certainly has a game that is explosive, um, and I, I I hope that you, you know he can. He's a, he's elected to play the World Doubles Finals with um, with Tanasi Kokonakis. You know he used to think doubles was rubbish. He thought doubles players, you know, yeah, get, get, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but you know, I think he's realised that it can help his singles game by continually playing, not not constantly, but keeping his hand uh, by playing some doubles with his good mate Kokonakis. And uh, I, I'm hoping, probably, probably uh, very very secretly, but it's also openly. Um, I you know with Kyrgios and Kokonakis in Turin. There hasn't been any formal announcement, but I'm hoping that Kyrgios will agree to play Davis Cup for Australia because he is a team player. He loves that team atmosphere. Uh, again, look at what he does on the doubles court. Uh, it's a way that the focus is not entirely on him. It's, you know, on it can be on Alex D. Minar. It can be on Kokonakis. It can be on Leighton Hewitt as the coach, the captain sitting on the sideline. Um you know, it, it, the chances of Australia doing well in Davis Cup will be enhanced if Nick Kyrgios can be a part of that team. So um, I, I've got my fingers crossed and uh, my toes, everything is crossed, hoping that uh, in the next 10, 10 days there will be, um, we'll see Nick Kyrgios added to um, the Australian team list and uh, gives us a great chance of winning the Davis Cup um, trophy. Thank you, Mark. This was wonderful. We can go on and on, but I know I asked for an hour. We are at 90 minutes of recorded time. So this was, again, a wonderful conversation. I wish you all the best for your trip to Europe uh, for Davis Cup, which you are going to oversee as part of the, the committee. And hopefully we can do this again in the near future. Look forward to it. It's always a pleasure, Sikhi. Take care.